0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is time for a classic episode of Tech Stuff. This episode originally published on October 16th, 2013. It is called Running on Steam. Yep, we're going to talk about some steamy stuff today. So let's listen back to this classic episode. We are talking about steam engines today and how they work and the principles behind them. And it really comes down to thermodynamics. You know, you're talking about heat, really, and what heat does and how it changes things. And that's, you know, harnessing that has allowed us to have a little bit of a revolution, industrially speaking.
1: Do do pretty. Oh, oh goodness, my gracious. I'm slow today. It took me like four seconds to get that. Pump. You're
0: slow. You didn't forget to introduce everybody.
1: We're both on. Huzzah. Yeah. OK, but so, yeah. Uh, so the thing about gases, um, when, when when you heat them up, they they do stuff. Yeah, they move
0: the molecules and the gases move around a lot more than they usually do. So let's say let's say you've got a liquid. All right, you've got all those molecules together in a liquid. They're chained together, right? They formed this this collection of molecules that are all part of a larger whole. Right. So, example, you got a bucket of water. Those molecules are all bound together to make that water. Now, you can you can separate some water from that, but the molecules within that separate section, they're still bound together. It's not like you've just freed them and they're now flying all over the place. But if you add energy, as in heat, to that water and you boil the water, that water starts to boil off and form steam. It's the gas form of that substance. And now the molecules can break free of each other. So now you've got these free flowing molecules that are zipping around at high speed, depending upon how much heat you've put into the system. And as it turns out, they exert pressure. I mean, this has momentum. It if it hits against stuff, it can press against stuff. And if you're able to harness that in some way, you can make that do work.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, you know, when you've got a sealed container and you create steam inside of it, it's going to exert pressure on the sides of that container. Right. Which and, can then do work.
0: Yeah, or explode, as it turns out, depending upon what you've made the container out of and how hot you've made that water. Uh yeah, because that's the other thing is that water when it goes into steam, it's expanding, right? You're talking about making it uh take up more space than it normally would, more volume than it normally would. And that, as it turns out, is a very important part of some early steam engines, the idea that... You can make something uh, uh, take up more room. And as it condenses, meaning that when the steam starts to cool down and turn back into water, it's taking up less room.
1: Right. It's going to create a little bit of a vacuum
0: that you can also use to do work. Yeah. So both of those those things, the idea of steam being able to press against stuff and the idea of steam once it condenses, creating a vacuum. Those are the basic principles behind your your various kinds of steam engines. Now. This idea is not brand new. First of all, you've got a lot of people who will cite that a certain person named James Watt was the inventor of the steam engine. As it turns out, that's being a little premature to, <laughs> to say that he did. I mean, he w- he certainly played an instrumental role in making steam engines uh, practical, but you have to go way back if you want to look at the people who were really the the inventors as far as we know of steam engines. Like keep in mind. We're talking right now about the first recorded instances of people talking about steam engines. The idea itself might even be older.
1: Right, right. But the first recorded instances are from the first century uh, CE.
0: Yeah. Common era. We're talking uh, Hero or Heron. Or Heros. Or Heros of Alexandria. Uh, He was was a
1: Greek mathematician mm -hmm. and uh, inventor.
0: Yep. He was born in Egypt, lived and worked in mostly in Alexandria, but was of Greek origin and uh, did a lot of different works. You know, he, he invented a lot of different things or at least wrote about a lot of things that we presume he invented. It may mm-hmm. very well be that he was just writing about stuff that other people had done. But as far as we know, he's the one who originated these ideas.
1: Yeah. Uh, he, he had a few inventions that he wrote about a uh, uh uh, coin operated device. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. I don't even know if it was like a, you know, sandal vending machine or something, or, you know, uh, put a coin in and watch the, the, the lion eat somebody. I'm, I don't know. I'm um,
1: hoping fortune teller. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's Zartan. You'd make a, I wish I were big. Uh, yeah. I don't know. He also, uh, wrote a lot about the discoveries of the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and also other uh, uh, Greeks, and, and also mm-hmm. the Romans.
1: Uh, and, a, and a bunch of stuff about the properties of air, which mm-hmm. is going to come very much in handy for one of these other things that he described.
0: Yeah, the uh, I think you're you're referring to the Aelipile. Uh, is that how you say that? That's I, terrific. That's how I say it. I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you how it's spelled. It's A-E-O-L-I-P-I-L-E. And I do not speak Greek. It's all Greek to me. So I and Lauren's just shaking her head disapprovingly. Can you
1: can you hear in our echoey studio the the rattle of my head shaking? A <laughs> I,
0: I can certainly see it better. Uh, this this room is better lit than our other studio was.
1: It's much larger. It's it's like a nice cave.
0: It is. It is a nice cave. Uh, so this this device that Heron uh, or Hero or Heroes had designed was an early form of what we would consider a, a steam engine, although from what we can tell, it was mostly meant as sort of a, a decoration or distraction.
1: Oh, right, more, more like a toy. And several of the things that we're going to be talking about from these early periods are more likely to be toys than anything else. Yeah, because it, concepts, you it know. Was
0: the idea of exploring this this nature of Well, steam can do these, these wild, wacky things. I don't know how we would do this in anything. I don't know how we would use this in any practical way, but look at this cool thing and what it can do. So what, uh, his could do was it was imagine like a big bowl made out of some metal like brass so you got a big brass bowl it's actually sealed so Mm -hmm. uh, you put water in it but then you put a a watertight seal on there Uh, it does have two pipes that come up from the top of the seal that then uh, meet up with a sphere that is mounted on these two pipes all right the sphere itself can can rotate uh along this axis that the pipes make. There's some sort of steam-tight ball bearings that were involved, I guess. Uh, also, by the way, we don't know that this was ever built, but this was his design. Right. So in the, the idea was that you would put the water inside this bowl, you would heat up the bowl, the uh, water would convert into steam, which would go up into the pipes, into the sphere. And the sphere itself had two nozzles or two jets uh,
1: on, were, on, on opposite sides, I believe.
0: Right. Opposite sides facing uh, so that they would allow the ball to rotate once steam escapes.
1: Uh, the same way that if you attached uh, two bottle rockets to two sides of a wheel um, and then, you know, let it yeah. let let it push it along.
0: Right. So in this case, the pushing is kind of interesting. So let's talk about what's going on inside that sphere which, as far as we know, was never actually built. But inside that <laughs> sphere, hypothetical sphere. Now, if the sphere had no nozzles, if there were no there were no openings there, were, but somehow there was just water in there that you had converted into steam.
1: That steam would be pressed pressing equally on on all surfaces. of Exactly. Sphere interior.
0: So, in other words, if you're looking at it, if you were able to slow things down to just look at things like, a nanosecond at a time, and you were able to observe individual molecules, you would see these molecules bouncing off the various interior surfaces of that sphere. But because they're going in all directions, they're canceling each other out, which means that the ball itself is staying still relative to its environment.
1: Hypothetically assuming it's a perfect sphere and that there aren't any, you know, major design flaws. Right,
0: like there's not some weird thing there that's blocking where molecules can usually hit. Uh, but if you put an, an opening in that sphere, that means some of the molecules are going to go through the opening and escape. So that means they are not exerting that force inside the sphere on the opposite side where molecules are banging against that that edge of the sphere that makes the sphere move. So in other words, it's not even that steam is escaping. It's that the steam that steam that is escaping is not counteracting the force that's that it's. uh counterparts are doing inside that sphere, which I think is kind of an interesting explanation when you think about it. And uh, uh, there was a, uh, a site I was reading where his example was, imagine you have a cardboard box, but you've taken the bottom and the top off of it, and you've taken one of the walls off of it. And then you put a whole bunch of kids in there just running around. And whenever they hit one of the sides of the walls, they careen off in a different direction. Uh, but because there's one section side that doesn't have a wall, sometimes kids just keep on running. And they're, they're outside of the box. Meanwhile, the kids who are hitting the opposite side where there is a wall are moving the box further and forward. further. Yeah. yeah. So it's forward motion keeps going, but it's left and right motion stay more or less the same because they get canceled out by the various kids. I thought, what an interesting way to... Uh, do that. And now I want to now I want to build this and I want to watch it happen, probably from, you know, a 50 foot observation tower. I don't kids in me. That's not a
1: I'm picturing that we could use podcasters instead of children. We
0: probably could, although we've got some kind of lazy podcasters. I don't know. They might, you know, just kind of eh, push the wall. Eh. Then are
1: are, are podcasters zombies? Is well, that, you know, I mostly on?
0: interact with them after lunch. So uh, it's always when we right. get the snoozies. Uh, all right. So anyway, that was the the basis behind his idea. But he also had another one uh, that would use steam to do work. That was my favorite example. So I had to include it.
1: Yeah, this one. I, I had not seen it. But so so there was a steam powered temple doors.
0: That was the idea. He I've got this great illustration. I'll show you after the podcast, Lauren. I'll, I'll put it up on our social, too, when we when we get this uh, podcast out. But the idea was really kind of interesting. So in the illustration, there's this altar and these temple doors. And the altar has a little area in it where you could set a sacrificial fire. Now that fire, the idea was that the fire would heat up water that would create steam. It would push the steam into a second container. That container, in turn, had a tube leading out of it and the other end of the tube would lead into a bucket. Now from what I can tell, it looks like the idea is that the steam would push into this container. The container would, uh, push more steam in through this other tube that was leading to the bucket. And there the steam would start to cool down and condense and condense. And it would turn into water. So when that would turn into water, the water would flow into the bucket enough. Fill the bucket. Yeah, which makes pulling it heavy. And it down. And the bucket itself is uh, suspended by a pulley. And so because the bucket gets heavier, it starts to exert Uh, Force on the pulley and eventually would pull the pulley so that the ropes on the uh, other side of the pulley would actually split into two ropes, wrapping around these two columns. And as those ropes, uh, the tension grew, it would make those columns rotate. The rotation of the columns, in turn, would open the temple doors. So by lighting the fire, you would entice the gods to open the doors for you, allowing people into your temple. Now, as it turns out, I think that this was probably a lot of work to open doors when you could just walk up and open them,
1: push it. Yeah. yeah. But
0: as it turns out, that's one of the reasons why uh, steam technology took so long to develop, even though we're talking about just, you know, just a few decades into the common era. That's when we're talking about steam engines. The reason we weren't using them for work is because there were a lot of other sources for work back in those days. Like the Romans had lots and lots of slaves. And as it turns out, the, the history of Europe had lots of that kind of thing. Either It was either slavery or serfdom. Anyway, there was a lot of source of cheap labor out there, so you didn't have to worry about building things to make labor easier. That's what those unfortunate people were for.
1: Yay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and also, also you know, the metal working at the time was not such that you could safely build boiler chambers that would really withstand the pressures necessary to right. create you would, a lot of these devices. We wouldn't get into that until like the 1800s. Exactly.
0: So. You, you, you could build low pressure mm-hmm. steam, uh, steam boilers, but low pressure means that you can't do a lot of work with them. They do, you know, you're releasing steam, uh, you're generating steam and releasing steam in a way where it's not, exerting the kind of pressure you would need to do anything really significant unless you were to be incredibly clever with your design. But we'll get into that. We, we have to go a little bit further before we get to that part. But, yes. but these were the fundamentals, right, of steam power, this idea of being able to, to change water into another form and make it do work. Uh, It would just take a, you know, a millennia and change before anyone started to think about it in another, you know, more practical way.
1: Yeah. Our next, in fact, is from
0: 1543. Uh, Blasco de Garay. He was an officer in the Spanish Navy. And we don't know for sure that he actually tried to do this or that what he proposed was, in fact, a steam engine because it's pretty vague. But he was talking about creating some sort of paddle boat that may have been steam powered.
1: Yeah, the the phrase used in the literature is vessel of boiling water.
0: Right. So as far as we know, the vessel of boiling water, well, you you could guess that, well, that must mean they was using steam in some way. But because there isn't enough context there, we can't be certain. But it sounds like the idea was that you would use some sort of vessel of boiling water to generate steam in order to turn the paddles on a boat very much like we would see uh, centuries later. But uh, the, the history books don't record any great Spanish paddle boats sailing across various European waters. So uh, I guess we can probably draw the conclusion that this was an interesting idea that was never uh, actualized. Right. Or if it was, it sunk. Um, <laughs> and the next one's uh, 1601, which not that not that long afterward uh, when a fellow named Giovanni Battista della Porta wrote in a, uh, a, a book called Spiritale of an invention that would use steam pressure to, to raise a column of water through a vacuum created by s- steam when it condenses. Now, this is what you were talking about earlier, Lauren.
1: Uh, right. Along the same lines, or I guess along opposite lines of all of these people who were theorizing that, you know, you can you can convert steam... Convert water to steam within a closed container and that will result in increased pressure that the opposite, if you can condense steam into water, that it will create a vacuum.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's that was an interesting idea that would, again, be capitalized on later. But this is the very basis of the earliest steam engines that were doing work, not that you were using steam to push something, but rather that you had created a chamber where steam, once it cools down and condenses into water, creates the suction force through the through creating a vacuum and thus can pull something. And uh in fact, as we'll talk about in just a couple of minutes, that's really how steam engines got their start. Uh, and again, it, that, the, one of the nice things about this, and I really do mean it as a nice thing, is that you could use a low pressure steam engine to create this effect. You didn't have to create high pressure to push something. You could just create steam in a low pressure environment, allow it to condense, and then it would create this, this force all on its own. So, uh, it ended up being a much more safe way of using steam power, especially early on before we had really reached the level of machining parts that could withstand those intense pressures that happen when you create lots of steam in a confined space. Right. I don't know if, uh, any of our listeners are, are familiar with a little program called Mythbusters. Uh, Mythbusters, of course, a Discovery Channel show. I was a huge fan well, well before I even worked for How Stuff Works. I was a big fan of the show. But, uh, I got to see Mythbusters live in Atlanta. They came down and did a behind the scenes kind of tour and they talked a little bit about the various explosions that they've seen on the show. And the reason why I'm saying this is that the, sh- the explosion they said was the most impressive and most terrifying was the water heater oh, wow. explosion. Because when you have that water under, you know, turning into steam under that intense pressure, and if you've cut off all the safety valves, which you should never, ever, ever do.
1: Right. Then, and yeah, safety valves on on boilers, in fact, are one of the terrific inventions. Yeah. Of,
0: Without which we probably would. Well, we certainly wouldn't be here because we'd have a totally different world. Yeah. Our world. We never would have Steam had the industrial revolution. Never would have happened. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, because he showed that, you know, you could essentially it would turn a water heater into part bomb, part rocket. And it was just you're talking about superheated water that's well past the boiling point due to the pressure, uh, hitting the air, boiling instantaneously, turning into super hot steam. So just being close to this, even if you weren't hit by shrapnel, you could be burned severely just from the steam. This is serious stuff. So that's why these low-pressure engines were the first foray into steam engines, uh, although we're still not quite there yet. We're just oh. talking about <laughs> theory at the moment.
1: Right. I've I've got one from 1672. Okay. Uh, this was Ferdinand um, Verbeist. I'm going to go with that pronunciation. Um, he <laughs> he might have uh, he, he was uh, living in the imperial Chinese court at the time, and he may have created a working steam car or toy. Um, Interesting. He at least drew up plans for one. And I'm not sure. It, again, it's it's really. Yeah, it's it's hard to say
0: a lot of these things from these earlier inventors. Uh, you know, they haven't survived. So mm. they may have one. We don't know if they were ever built and then just were destroyed or lost. Or we don't know if you know it just was just in the plans but never actually built.
1: One thing that I do believe was built in 1679. A French scientist and math professor named um, Denis Papin, from from yes France. I already said that. Excellent. Um, uh, created the first pressure cooker, which is really a direct application of what Delaportia was talking about. Yep. Um, this was I think the official name translated as the digester or engine for softening bones, which isn't creepy at all.
0: No. Um, <laughs> no, that doesn't make me think of serial killer in the slightest. <laughs>
1: but, but by but by attaching to this pressurized chamber a sliding piston, uh, you know, and then heating the pot, the expanding steam would push the piston up. And then the vacuum created when the steam cooled to a liquid liquid would pull the piston back down. Gotcha. Um and this is going to become extremely important. Very soon.
0: Yeah. Uh, there, there were a lot of other people who were thinking about steam engines at this time. So while it, you know, you would argue that steam engines really didn't come into play until the mid 1700s, uh, it was the 1600s where we had lots of people theorizing about it. They were kind of laying the groundwork that would allow the, the following scientists, engineers, mechanics, you know, just interesting people who, who thought about steam power and and began to put it to our toward a practical application they would follow and build upon the discoveries that the their forefathers had come up with and those included people like uh, Jacob Besson uh, there's a little guy named Leonardo da Vinci um, he had three turtle friends as I recall and was trained by a rat uh, Florence Rivol uh, Thomas grant Edward Ford lots of people were really talking about steam at this time And then that leads us up to a a fellow who patented an idea in 1698, Thomas Savory. And he was the one who who was really interested in this idea of using the condensing steam to do work.
1: Right. Well, okay. so so a little bit of background on what he what he patented. So coal mines were booming at this time because Mm -hmm. England was facing this timber crisis. There were increases in shipbuilding and uh, lots of firewood being used. So. So coal mining was becoming huge.
0: Right. So coal be- was starting to become the fuel of choice in England. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that would remain true for the next couple of centuries. Mm-hmm.
1: And so he patented this thing that he called the miner's friend. Um Because a problem in coal mines is you wind up getting uh water in places where you really don't want water. and Yeah, it's... like where
0: there are people underground.
1: <laughs> or where you're, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> where, where you're trying to work, and it's much harder when they're, you know...
0: Yeah, completely submerged. Exactly. We'll talk more about that in a podcast that we're going to record immediately after this one.
1: Um, Spoiler. But so but so he uh, so he patented this thing that uh, I don't again, like I don't think he ever built it.
0: Yeah, it was a design for a device that could pump water out of mine's. Using a uh, a steam powered apparatus to to operate the pump, but again, you're not using steam to push something; It was a design where the condensing steam would create a pulling force that would move some sort of uh, piston or which in turn would move some sort of lever that in turn would operate a pump and pull water out. One of the problems was that it was th- even based just on the design. They could tell that it was going to be fairly limited in how far it could draw water, something like, you know, between 20 and 30 feet, maybe. Um, And that would be something that future engineers would improve upon. I hate to interrupt this steamy conversation, but it's time for us to take a quick break. All right, let's get back into talking about steam engines. So we have worked our way up to 1712 when a fellow named Thomas Newcomen invents a steam engine that is following along the same lines as Thomas Savory's idea, the idea to pump water from mines. The basic design was like this. You had a boiler, and the boiler's purpose, of course, is to hold the water and to allow that to heat up to, to generate convert steam. steam. Right. Mm-hmm. So the steam would move into a cylinder, which had a piston in it. But again, it wasn't meant to push the piston. The piston's natural resting place was at the top of the cylinder because the piston was attached to kind of a counter lever arm, and the other end of the arm was pulled down by gravity. It was meant to be heavier than the the side that the piston was attached to.
1: Right. And so when the steam would cool, it would condense, and then the force of the vacuum that created would pull the piston down and thereby lift the other, lift the other side of yeah, the arm.
0: Which would operate the pump. Right. So here you've got this pulling suction that is moving the piston downward, lifting the other end of this, this uh, lever up, and that in turn was using was actually activating the pump pulling the water out of the mine and uh the the way this would work is that once you had that steam cool down uh the way they would cool it down is actually inject water into the cylinder so you've got the cylinder it's heated up you've got the in fact the heat was you know the cylinder was quite warm they had to cool the cylinder down to condense it, the steam back into water so they inject water into it helps cool the steam down, pulls the piston down, and then they would allow the the water to heat up again the steam would slowly enter into this uh, uh cylinder as gravity was pulling the other end of the lever the heavier end back down again that pulls the piston back to the up resting place and steam would fill the cylinder again you'd have to cool it down again you'd do this over and over again now if you're listening and you're thinking wow that that sounds like that might not be terribly efficient you're right because it meant that you had to keep cooling and heating that cylinder over and over, which meant that you had to continuously burn fuel so that you could continuously heat the water to and, create this this uh, suction.
1: And furthermore, have other people working to cool down the cylinder. Right. However, all of this was still more efficient than housing an entire team of horses to do the same work.
0: Right, right. And so it ended up uh, actually being such a useful device that they were used well after uh, improved devices were made Yeah, so,
1: up until the 1900s. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You, you know, it wasn't until like it was in the late 1760s when you would get a, a big improvement over this design. But even then, even after that improvement was made, these were very reliable pumps and had been used for quite some time. You can actually see one if you go to Dearborn, Michigan. There's the Henry Ford Museum, and they have on display one of Newcomen's actual engines. So this is one of the ones that dates back to the early 18th century, uh, which I think is awesome. I, I totally want to do a tech stuff series where we go to different museums and see and talk about this kind of stuff.
1: If anyone wants to invest.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, hey, the, if you guys all think that's a great idea, Let us know and we'll pass those along to Discovery because I don't know how I'm going to swing this uh, on my own other than, you know, really working on my hitchhiking skills. Lauren's nodding. Okay, so (laughs) this great radio. (laughs) But no, so so like I said, this was not terribly efficient because of the, the cooling and the heating of that cylinder, right? Right. So if you could find a way of creating this vacuum to cool the steam down, but to not have to worry about uh heating and cooling the cylinder itself, thus wasting fuel, you could make this a much more efficient system. And as it turns out, there somebody was somebody came up that, with that. Right? Yeah. In seventeen sixty
1: nine, James Watt Came yep. up with the plans for this one.
0: Now, he's the guy who often we credit as the inventor of the steam engine. Though all you guys who've been listening, you know that's not exactly true. That's... Because
1: he, he really just took this Newcomen engine and added a separate condenser to it.
0: Right. So what he did was he essentially added a separate chamber that connects to the cylinder. And so the cylinder would fill up with steam and then move into the separate chamber where it would condense and still, you would still get the vacuum, but because you didn't have to worry about heating or cooling the cylinder itself, uh, you didn't have to use as much fuel and as a result, depending upon which source you read, uh, they or say saved... or
1: you didn't have to worry about cooling the cylinder. You could right. just let it continually. Heat yeah,
0: exactly. Because you from the boiler. lose yeah. so much heat. Exactly. You didn't have to. Yeah, you didn't have to keep on burning fuel to uh, to, take to compensate for the fact that you mm-hmm. had to use water to cool it down. So uh, according to some sources, uh, that would mean that you save between 50 and 75 percent of the fuel you would usually use to operate the steam engine. Well, that's what made steam engines suddenly practical from a fuel standpoint. So they w- they had already been proven to be able to do practical work, but they weren't very efficient. They used so much fuel that it became one of those questions of, well, is it even worth it to invest in this? Uh, and then with this invention, it made the steam engine something that was truly possible in lots of different applications. And that's when we really saw a figurative explosion in steam technology. There were some literal there ones, too. There were probably too. a few of those, yeah. yeah. In fact, that was one of the things Watt was really concerned about. He wanted to continue working in low-pressure boilers, low-pressure steam engines, because he felt that any sort of high-pressure application was far too dangerous to be practical. And he spoke and out at the against it. And time, they were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, the thing was that In other areas of industry, there were lots of improvements, like in machining and metalworking. So there were people who were working on building stronger, more secure boilers and and engines that could handle high pressure. Watt was just very cautious about the whole thing. Uh, So it was one of those, the the development of high-pressure engines would wait for another probably 40 years or so. Um, But anyway, uh, Watt's stuff, he... Became known as a genius in his own time. Everyone was crediting him with the creation of this magnificent uh, technology. Um, I'm sure that he was happy to receive that. But in the same year that when he uh, he created these improvements to the Newcomen engine, there was another fellow, Nicolas Cugnot, a uh, French military officer, who developed a steam-powered car and it was designed to tow artillery pieces
1: and it could only move at about 2 miles per hour which is about 3.2 kilometers per hour yep.
0: and so it was never really used it wasn't really seen as practical the idea here because was because it wasn't yeah uh i read about it being um it being displayed in paris where they were running it and it ran into a wall but since it ran into a wall 2 miles per hour no one noticed that that's a true story um <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, it was a, but it was an early example of a steam powered car, if you can call it that. It really looked more like a, uh, like a long wooden dolly with a huge (laughs) boiler on the end of it. Um, it, it certainly didn't look like a car the way we would think of a car today, but it was designed to tow artillery.
1: Yeah. We will get into some actual steam powered cars.
0: Very soon. Uh, so 1780, that's when James Picard and Matthew Wasborough build a steam engine with rotary motion. So this is using various levers and, and other devices like a crankshaft uh, to transfer this uh, reciprocal motion, which is that up and down motion of a piston into rotational motion. Now, those of you who listen to our transmission episode will know all about this. And that's why I'm not going to go over it again, because that episode nearly broke us. Yes, it was yes, about it, cars, which I don't know if you guys have picked up on this. I'm not a big expert. Yeah, neither of us are really gearheads. Should have grabbed Scott. Probably. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yes, it, it trans, translated this reciprocating motion into rotational force. So that ended up being another important development, um, although wasn't really used in a practical sense for a while longer.
1: No. Um, oh, there, there's, Watt had another terrific addition to Mm. to his engine. And that was in 1783. He created a double acting engine.
0: Right. Well, this was an idea that uh, ends up being really important in steam engines later on, although mostly used in high pressure engines, not low pressure engines. The idea being that you can uh, you have a cylinder that has valves on either end of the cylinder. And so as the piston is moving toward one side, steam is escaping out of that side. And it's, you know, it's increasing on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. And then once it gets to the end, the valve switch. And so the piston moves to the other side and steam is coming into one end and escaping out the other. Now with Watts designs, of course, we're talking about using that suction force. So it's the condensing that's pulling the piston from one side to the other. But later double action steam engines would actually use steam force to push the piston one side and then on the other side. In fact, that's how most of the locomotive steam engines used steam. Right. Um, And, man, I love those locomotives, too. But then, you know, I think every kid who got to play with them (laughs) was fascinated. Certainly people like Walt Disney became obsessed with them. Uh, I think that's a a safe term. But then we started seeing steam engines used in lots of different ways. We're getting up to the 1800s now, and that's really where the steam uh, era takes off. And you start seeing steamboats, paddle steamers, uh, s- locomotives. In 1801, a man named Richard Trevithick, who was an English miner and engineer, built a steam-powered locomotive called the Puffing Devil. It could uh, go on short trips, but only on short trips, because he had trouble keeping the water hot enough to generate steam consistently. Uh, that actually was a real issue with a lot of steam engines, the idea of how do you how do you heat the boiler properly.
1: And I believe his engines were the first that were using steam to actually push pistons rather than the condensation and the vacuum to pull.
0: Exactly. Trevithick was of the school of thought that high pressure steam engines, their time had come. It was safe enough. You could do it. Watt, again, was not sold on this idea, but uh, Trevithick certainly thought that this was something that you could do. And uh, the early ones were still pretty inefficient. They weren't terribly fast. Um, he would eventually build a little locomotive. Uh, for for amusement, really, it wasn't meant as a form of transportation. It was called the Catch Me Who Can at a top speed of 12 miles per hour, which is about 19 kilometers per hour.
1: I, I think I think this was in display in London. Some track was already laid around the UK and the rest of Europe because yeah. horses would use the track to pull pulley to pull carts along.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. In more fact, efficiently, so. in fact, uh yeah, the birth of the, the locomotive is really a, a, an English thing. We think sure. of it. As a very American thing here in the United States, because it was so defining of that era. In also, our we really history. like
1: to just take ownership of everything. We do.
0: I mean, you know, that's that wall's not so great, China. Well, I think we need to take another quick break because I've got the vapors. Not not really. It's just that's that's steam related. OK, bye.
1: In 1804, a London brewery engineer named Arthur Wolfe improved this high-pressure boiler design through something called compounding, which uses excess steam from one piston to fire a second piston and then a third. This creates less heat loss in the system and, and winds up with, you know, you, you have to burn less fuel, which is right.
0: great. Great, more efficiency, again, making it more of a practical uh, power solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, moving up to 1807, that's when another big name in steam engines, uh, this is someone, anyone who has followed the story of steamboats, uh, anyone who's familiar with Mark Twain is going to know this name, Robert Fulton. He introduced the first steamship to provide regular passenger service in America. Average speed of the steamship was five miles per hour or eight kilometers per hour. Screaming. Yeah. Well, you know, you if you don't have to paddle, it's fast enough. It's, you know, it's it's a uh, it, and again, it's one of those things that another one of those defining images in American history. You think back to things like, you know, like the Mark Twain stories, and they all have this sort of you know, the, the evocative image of the great steamship. Uh, of course, Mark Twain was a steamship uh, pilot. Operator, for a while. Yeah. Right,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in fact, Mark Twain, that's a steamship term. It's actually a term for how deep the water is. Uh, which you would know if you ever have sailed on the rivers of America in Disney World. Just pay attention on on that boat, because they'll tell you all this. That's where I got it. So <laughs> I'm citing my source, uh, Disney World. I was just there. I don't know if you know that. That's that's where he was, I was on, on his his vacation. vacation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 1814, George Stevenson.
1: He was another English engineer, yep. and uh, he built a steam locomotive to run on rails. Yep,
0: and it carried 30 tons of coal, 450 feet uphill at four miles per hour or six kilometers per hour, which Which doesn't doesn't sound like much, but that's a huge amount of
1: weight to have to transfer. And it was a huge improvement over um, Trevithick's version, which could haul about 10 tons of iron, about 10 miles. Right.
0: So uh, although it didn't go very far, it certainly had to carry a lot of stuff and and, uh, up an incline. So, you know, it it was a, a big improvement over taking like a super long route in order to avoid having to go up an incline like that. Um, now, at this stage, the steam engines worked uh, with this, like I said, the steam press is on either side, where you've got the piston with the valves there, the valve will control where the steam can enter and where it can exit. So the steam comes in one side. Now, in this case, we do have the steam pressing, right? So the steam comes in on one side of the cylinder, pushes the piston across, the uh, steam exits out as uh, uh, of one part of the valve while steam comes into the other end of the cylinder, the piston keeps that that seal steam tight and then the piston moves back across the way it came the first time uh, and you've got this this process of a stroke exhaust and then the second stroke and it's exhaust and it goes over and over and over again meanwhile you would have the piston attached to some other form of device that would help uh, move the whole Project, whatever it happens to be. So with a locomotive, it might be a lever that is then connected to a wheel. So one move of the piston would be a half turn of the wheel, and the move of the piston going back the other way would be the other half turn. And that's where you get that locomotive force, where you can have the train moving down the track. And having that steam escape is what gives the trains their choo choo sound. That's true. So, you know, when you hear the ch- sound of the steam escaping, And it goes over and over. That's why kids call trains choo-choos. I don't think they do it anymore. Or if they do, it's kind of that skeuomorphism thing. Because, of course... You don't have many steam-powered trains these days, unless you go to Walt Disney World, where you can ride a train around <laughs> Main Street, USA. And <laughs> this podcast, strangely enough,
1: is not brought to you by <laughs> Disney World. No, no, um, I, I was brought to you by Disney World, apparently. Uh, I, I believe usually on steam locomotives, uh, it's called a, it's called a crosshead, the the portion that links out from this piston, and mm. that's going to be connected to something called a drive rod, and then coupling rods are going to what are going to be what drives the wheels. Yeah,
0: yeah, you usually do. Have have to have a couple of different elements in here to translate the motion properly because otherwise again you've got that reciprocating motion which is just going in two directions right it's either going uh, up and down or left and right however you know depends on your orientation and the orientation of the device but that limits what you can do unless you use other gadgets to kind of translate that motion into something that can do useful work I mean, unless you just need to open and close a door repeatedly, then <laughs> then you could just have a pole attached to it. But otherwise, you would need something more more uh, uh, versatile. So uh, by 1825, steam locomotives were starting to be used to haul passengers on a regular basis. But at that point, uh, before then, it was pretty much used in cargo.
1: Right. I think the very I think 1825 was the very first uh, ride of a passenger steam locomotive. That was George Stevenson's locomotion number no. one. It carried some cargo and maybe about 600 passengers or so. And that was that was its maiden voyage.
0: I hear that uh, everybody was doing a brand new dance now. They do the locomotion. Okay, Lauren is shaking her head again, so I guess I need to move on. All right. So 1800s from 1825 all the way through 1880. We're going to make a big skip unless you have something you want to add in that.
1: Uh not really no i I guess I guess I could put in at this point that the popular kind of boiler that was being used at this time and and this is going to become important for for safety reasons, the popular kind of boiler was a fire tube boiler, which basically consists of a tank of water perforated with furnace pipes, and the you know the the hot gases from generated from the fire from the fire in these pipes that are going through this cylinder of water mm-hmm. are what is heating the water. It's a pretty efficient way to do it. But it also means that the whole tank is under a lot of pressure. So therefore, if it bursts, it's going to lead to that big, scary explosion that we were talking about earlier.
0: Right. So the heating element here are these these pipes that run through the boiler. The water surrounds the pipes. The pipes get hot because of the fires creating these hot gases. You also, by the way, have to have something to vent the hot gases out of. So yes. so you didn't just have steam venting out. You actually had hot air, hot gases venting out, too, based uh, from whatever the heat source was. See, that was one of the problems that earlier inventors had run into, was that they were trying to figure out a way of creating this hot water. And some of them were doing things like using a red hot iron uh, inserted underneath a boiler but that heat starts to dissipate and once it does, you don't have power anymore. So it was only through creating something that would be, allow you to generate to a fire and continually generate. So even though we talk about steam powered trains, if you've ever seen those movies where they're shoveling coal into a furnace, well, you have to generate the steam, right? It's the, the train's not running on coal. The coal is what's generating the heat in the fire. That's it's the, boiling it's, the water. It's, it's the that's fuel that right. creates, the, yeah, creates the heat that allows the water to boil, that makes the train go, and the green grass grows all around and around. So, uh, yeah, so moving up to 1880, between 1825 and 1880, steam engines are used in practically every th- major industrial uh, application. And, in fact, really both figuratively and literally, drive the Industrial Revolution. In 1880, Charles A. Parsons invents the first steam turbine. So now we're getting into a way of using steam to not just push something mechanically, but also generate electricity, which would become really important as well. Uh, In 1897, or actually really 1896 is when we first start seeing Steam-powered cars in the United States, the Stanley Steamer being the popular model. Also affectionately called Flying Teapots. (laughs) If you ever seen a picture of these? They really do look like uh, horseless carriages. When you hear that term, it looks like it's a carriage that's missing a horse in front of it. And it's got one, usually one lever that you use for steering. (laughs) And that's it. And uh, you just, uh, you know, Godspeed. They Uh, They
1: were really popular, though, in this early 1900s kind of period. More than 60,000 of them were produced. in the
0: United States. And 60,000, that's obviously a tiny number these days. But you're talking back then where only a small sliver of the population would have had access to it, both monetarily and just from opportunity's sake. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone lived in in an area where they could get access to this. Also, keep in mind that these machines were usually used for intercity travel. It's not something that the idea of traveling across country really wasn't, wasn't uh, part of the automotive uh, industry at that point, whether it was steam powered or gas powered or even electrically powered. We talked about electrical cars and they predate the gas engine vehicles as well. Um, If you wanted to go across the country, you got on a train. You Mm -hmm. didn't you didn't drive your car at this time. Right. But uh, Uh, we get up to a sad time, though. We're getting up to, for those of us who who happen to like the choo-choos.
1: Yeah, uh, as of about 1960, we're going to see the end of the locomotive era.
0: Yeah, you don't see many places producing steam-powered trains these days. If they are, it's for uh, some sort of amusement park or something along those Mm -hmm. lines. It's not meant as a a means of travel. There are some steam-powered engines that are still in operation in various places around the world, but they aren't really being produced because we have alternatives now.
1: Oh, right. Certainly by the 1930s, people had started to realize that internal combustion engines using gasoline as a fuel were much more efficient and cheap to use than these than these external combustion engines, which right. is what a steam engine is. Yeah,
0: it really is. Yeah. Um, um, so we start seeing this end of this era in around 1960. But it doesn't mean that we're no longer using steam engines. We still are.
1: Right, right. Uh Partially because we have improved the kind of boiler that's used. Water tube boilers are... Kind of the inverse of that fire tube boiler that I was talking about earlier. It's, it's basically a furnace that's perforated with water pipes instead of being a water tank that's perforated with furnace pipes.
0: Gotcha. And, so and you've and got therefore, these tubes of water inside a furnace.
1: Uh, you've got tubes of water inside a furnace and, uh, and yeah, so, so only those tubes are under pressure and therefore it's safer overall.
0: Right. There's less years. of a, less of a chance for a catastrophic breakdown. Mm-hmm.
1: Although again, with valves, with proper valving, you, you're pretty safe most of the time.
0: Yeah. Uh, back in 2009, you know, way back then, a, uh, a team of engineers built a car called the Inspiration, which is a steam-powered high-speed car, uses a turbine engine, not a piston engine, a steam-powered, and it broke the land speed record for steam-powered vehicles. Um, the average speed was a breezy 148 miles per hour or 238 kilometers per hour.
1: That's fast. Yeah.
0: You're being powered by steam.
1: And I, and I think I think that that is the, still the standing uh, land speed record. I know that there is another
0: team working on it. Uh, there's a U.S. steam team that's working on building its own uh, steam powered vehicle that they hope will break that record. But as far as I know, that has not happened yet as of the recording of this podcast.
1: Yeah. And there is there, there are a few companies that are working on test versions of steam powered cars. There's one called Cyclone Cyclone Power Technologies, which is uh working with Raytheon, yep. the defense contractor at the moment. And in, in
0: fact the the US team is working on a high speed vehicle called the Cyclone. That's what the name of the one that they're hoping will break the record okay. is called the Cyclone. There you go.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're you know they're producing these engines that would fit in the you know standard vehicle engine space.
0: That's a big deal, too. We didn't even mention that. But the steam engines of
1: traditionally were very large
0: Yeah, because you had to have a boiler. You mm-hmm. had to have something that could co- contain a lot of water to generate the steam you needed. And, you know, you were venting that steam. So it wasn't like you were you recapturing, recapturing
1: and reusing. Yeah. yeah Even
0: if you did recapture it, especially with the old condenser models, uh, even if you did recapture it, you were still losing some. So it's It wasn't something that you could run indefinitely. You might be able to run it for a long time. But, you know, that's one of those challenges is trying to miniaturize something like steam power, which, uh, you know, doesn't work so well. Also, turns out to be a big part of the steampunk movement, this kind of idea of avoiding the miniaturization. You know, you want these kind of. Bulky, uh, things that have lots of character to them. Right. You know, they're shiny and brassy.
1: Unuseful, but really full of character. Yeah,
0: no, it's got lots of character. It just looks like, wow, you know, that, that's a great, uh, steampunk version of a mobile device and it only weighs 70 pounds.
1: And burns you terribly every <laughs> right. time
0: you use it. Right. Well, then, you know, that would obviously, you would know, be much more frugal with your use. <laughs> you wouldn't be picking up your smartphone every five seconds at dinner uh I'm speaking about my own personal behavior at this point. So uh yeah, there's still other companies that are developing steam engines for power generation, usually for places in the world that are not on a power grid and therefore do not have access to electricity. Uh there's one called uh, Uniflow Power, which is uh, unveiled a generator back in 2010, uh steam generator or steam powered generator, I should say. Didn't generate steam, <laughs> it generated power through steam. Um <laughs> but it was meant to help communities that are not directly connected to power grids to Mm -hmm. to deliver electricity to parts of the world that otherwise would not have it. Right. So we're seeing steam still being used in in applications today. Oh, absolutely. And
1: I mean, you know, I want to point out that most of the electricity generated is technically steam generator Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what nuclear power is. That's what a coal power plant is. Right. Yeah. yeah we're talking. You're, you're, you know, we, you're burning a fuel that is generating steam that is turning a turning turbine. Turning a turbine usually. That, oh. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, even things like the plasma waste converters. I've talked about those in the past where they've talked about using the excess heat in order to generate steam that would turn turbines and uh, be kind of a co-located with a power generator. So you'd have a trash disposal and power generation unit all put together. But it's using steam to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's plasma to, to break down the, the trash, yeah, but it's, it's steam to generate the, the power.
1: A level of efficiency of, of how hot you can get water, how quickly with with how right. it'll work.
0: Yeah. And then how can you how can you take something that normally would just be considered a waste byproduct and turn it into useful stuff? Yeah. you know, Heat, we often think of, oh, we lost a lot of our energy through heat. But if you can recapture that heat and make it do work like you can with steam power, then you're in good shape. So, yeah, that kind of wraps up our discussion about steam engines. Uh, this was a fun one to do. It's totally another one of those look backs on on the technology of days of yore that are still relevant today. I hope you guys enjoyed that classic episode. If you have suggestions for future topics of current episodes of Tech Stuff, send it to me via Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.